0: Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of individual stories or tour level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Matt Zemek. Uh, Sakib Ali is producing. But, uh, you know, if you've been listening to the TWAA podcast, you heard Sakib and Mert Ertunga, at least you might have, uh, talking about the career of Roger Federer last week. That was part one of our two-part Federer retrospective here at Tennis with an Accent. So this is part two, and I will talk to... Andrew Burton, our in-house consultant and analyst the Tennis with an Accent, for more perspective. And so I definitely want you, Andrew definitely wants you to listen to Sakib and Merck's conversation if you haven't done so already. And you will find that that conversation covers a very particular patch of ground with respect to the career uh, and the tennis journey of Roger Federer. So Andrew and I are going to try and cover a different patch of ground. That we're not uh, replicating too much content, and so Andrew, as I bring you on, you know we were going to have this conversation at some point. Well that moment has arrived. Roger Federer's tennis career, at least as a player, is in the past tense, so you know if you were if you were Charles Dickens or if you were Keats or uh Kipling or or any other writer and you're and you're trying to write the great book of Federer. What's your first sentence? What's your first paragraph? Or at least, you know, in a larger metaphorical sense, where do you think this story starts? Where do you think uh, the heart of this story uh, is found? And you could speak personally in terms of how this journey resonated for you, or you could speak broadly as an observer of the scene over the past 20 years of, of the story of men's tennis. How do you start the great book of Federer, uh, if if it were up to you?
1: So I think I have to plagiarise Charles Dickens. Given that introduction, it was the best of times; it was the worst of times. And you know, sooner or later, I'll be able to throw in it is a far, far better thing that I do that I have ever done before. So, when we were discussing uh, a Federal Reaction podcast last week, uh, one of the things that we kicked around was well. The story isn't complete yet because we haven't had the Labour Cup. So now we've had the Labour Cup. Uh it was a first win for Team World. So congratulations to them and uh you know excellent performances by, by several of their players, notably Francis Tiafo. Um Tiafo was one of the participants, along with Jack Sock, in Federer's final match on the ATP tour, which was a doubles match. And he partnered his great friend and rival, Rafael Nadal. Uh, fittingly, and we'll we'll possibly touch on some of this as the conversation goes on, but Federer had match point on his serve uh, at 10-9 in the, in the match tie break. Um, failed to convert it. And the team world... Uh, then took their opportunity when when they got a match point. So then there was uh, hugs and embraces, and there were tears. Fittingly, again, for Federer's career, that there would be tears before bedtime. There were tears in his interview with uh, Jim Courier, who was something of a pro and made sure it didn't get too out of hand. Uh, and then there was the... Um, video presentation, but you also had shots and, and videos that resounded, I think, around the tennis world of Federer and Nadal, Federer and Djokovic, Djokovic with his hands on Federer's shoulder, Federer and Nadal briefly touching hands, both of them crying, sitting on the bench. And, and so that happened. But then if you go back 20 or 30 years, I think that would have been inconceivable. Now, that's a Princess Bride reference for you, but it would be (laughs) it would be inconceivable to imagine the best men's tennis players in the world um, celebrating each other, celebrating their rivalry, but celebrating their friendship, celebrating what one of their number had brought to the sport, doing so in what is still something of a brand new competition and having such a completely different vibe to let's say the Sam Press Agassi era or the Lendl McEnroe era that that moment, that event was much more than who wins and who loses it was much more than the number of titles it was much more than sometimes the rivalries among the fan bases would have you think that, that they bring to the game. So it was it, 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 in, in many ways, it encapsulated aspects of the period of the last 20 years where Federer has been a major figure in the sport.
0: Well, you know, so that brings us really quite immediately, Andrew, into the reality that you know, Federer was the founder of the Big Three era. And of course, he needed Nadal and Djokovic to join him. And we should also say that Andy Murray was part of the Labor Cup team. And we should also feel free to call this the Big Four era, because Murray definitely deserves his, his seat at the table, his place in tennis history. So Federer created this era. And, I, and so, I guess you know jumping off from your initial remarks, like let's go back to two thousand and six two thousand seven you know it, it's easy to to look back on this era now, but like what just what were your thoughts in two thousand and six and two thousand and seven? of course, full disclosure. We were both at Peter Bodo's tennis world back then with tim and ross angel and and so many other names who you know that come flooding back to the surface of memory now as you know we recall the, the full scope of, of Federer's career you know what was it like in 2006 when we we saw in 2005 when we st- saw these stirrings of Nadal becoming a great rival and you know the, the player uniquely suited to contest Federer at, at big tournaments and then Djokovic in 2007 in the summer Uh, in Montreal, and then US Open. Do you you have a very clear recollection, Andrew, of how your thoughts evolved at the time when when these rivals were sprouting up for Federer, and this special era of men's tennis was taking shape?
1: Yes, I do. And, um, you know, it's good that you um, pointed out that you and I, I think, I first started commenting at Uh, Pete Bodo's Tennis World which was a blog that Pete set up Steve Tignor had a blog that he called Concrete Elbow Uh, and that was part of a couple of blogs at tennis.com it was also nascent social media so there was a a very large group of people who called themselves the tribe who would uh, analyze matches we would match call Uh, matches and you know go backwards and forwards on the the story of the day Uh, the 2006 era. I I actually just pulled up before the um, this this conversation started I pulled up Federer's first press conference uh, after he played Novak Djokovic for the first time in Monte Carlo in 2006 that was around a 64 match and Djokovic won the second set 6-2 Federer came through and eventually played uh, in the final against Nadal and there was some comment about you know is Novak a promising player yeah he's okay Uh, I don't think Federer or anyone really saw how good Novak was going to be in that 2005, 2006, 2007 timeframe. And it really wasn't until, I would say, 2011 when he he had a a complete breakout season that you began to see him as not just a, a, a future number one, but potentially a dominant number one. We're getting ahead of ourselves perhaps there Uh, He was a coming player. Murray was a coming player. Murray beat uh, Federer in 2006 at Cincinnati uh, in a quite bizarre match where there were about 35 breaks of serve, uh, but Murray won in in straight sets. Uh, One of five matches that Federer lost that year, the other four, I think, being to Nadal. And the story was in 2005-2006, that Nadal was in Federer's head, that, um, th- that he was a problem that Federer could solve. Uh, he was a lefty. He, he moved very well. He was very defensive and, and and really a clay court specialist. And the first major tournament that I attended was Indian Wells in 2007. I was hoping to see Federer play, uh, but he managed to, to lose to... Uh, Kanyas, uh, snapping a 41-match winning streak. And I saw Nadal defeat Djokovic in the final there. And it was quite clear that uh, Nadal was, was by no means a clay court specialist. He'd, he'd been in the final of Wimbledon in 2006, though his chances had been dismissed to the, the great dismay of a lot of his supporters at Tennis World. Uh, by Cliff Drysdale, uh, who, who who thought he had no chance against Federer, but Djokovic uh, had cracked the top ten that week and lost in straight sets to Nadal, but then beat Nadal uh, in Miami in the quarterfinals before winning uh, the tournament. And by 2007, 2008, it was it was quite clear that Nadal wasn't going to go away. And then over the the, the next period of time. You had the emergence of Djokovic and Murray as, as younger rivals, although it wasn't yet really the big four era. It was, it, it was still really uh, Federer and Nadal as the, the great rivalry. What really changed that, I think, um, apart from you know, the continuing growth of uh, Nadal, uh, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray as players, was Federer's illness uh, with mononucleosis at the start of 2009 and the impact that that had on the, the 2009 season and that, that really was the shattering of what had been a kind of almost period of invincibility uh, for Federer that he, he um, no, it was the 2008 season, wasn't it, where he got mono that that 2007 he he'd won three majors he'd lost an Adal in the the final of roland garros but he won the uh the world tour finals beating david ferrer quite comfortably but then 2008 it it sort of turned on its head
0: and uh and you know it's worth mentioning like that's a that's a really neat note about Federer's career, and of course, there's so many like rivers and tributaries that we can explore with Federer's career. And that 2008 is a perfect example that he had mononucleosis and he still won that long five-setter against Yanko Tipsarevic at the Australian Open, and he bowled his way into the semis of the, of a major with mono. <laughs> in, in exactly. 2008. I mean, he you know, d- d- doing these things that you know for any other human being healthy. Would be a chore. Federer with mono was able to get to that 2008 Australian Open semi, and then you know in the aftermath of mono and the, you know the the extent to which an athlete, took the extent to which the human body recovers after mono, like that is certainly no given. And Federer was still able to make the finals at each of the next three majors in 2008. He had a season that you know 99.5 percent of all human beings would kill for but of course for federer at that time the year was a quote unquote disappointment because of the fact that he was ruling tennis from 2004 through 2007 so that that's a very welcome small piece of perspective in terms of just how great the prime federer years uh truly were so so andrew as we continue you know putting this big 3 era into focus i think uh, a good a good next step in this conversation of piecing together this era and how it how it came together what was the moment when you thought ah you know this is this is going to be special on a transcendent level i speaking only for myself andrew and keeping peter bono's tennis world as part of this conversation i distinctly remember after the 2007 wimbledon final uh, first off, Federer said on court in the post-match uh, presentation and interview, he said, I better win them now because Rafa's going to get them all. Something uh, it, it was something very close to that. That's not a verbatim quote, but it's very close to that. I better get it get them now because Rafa's coming for, for them all. He's going to win them all uh, before too long. Very prescient words from Mr. Federer there. And I remember specifically commenting on Tennis World that I said, you know what? This Nadal guy, he's gonna win at least seven French Opens, and he's gonna win at least ten majors. Well, I, I severely underrated Mr. Nadal. I'm I'm very sorry, Rafa fans, uh, for doing that. Um, but I but of course, at the time to say that someone's gonna win seven French Opens, uh and he's gonna win ten majors, uh that that seemed like a revolutionary a uh, remarkable thing to say like sticking your neck out. So that that for me, 2007 Wimbledon final when Rafa really he had Federer to use your term under the cosh uh for portions of that match. Had had Federer uh down double break point early in the 5th set. He was doing it on grass and he had a little bit of a knee injury uh uh in that match which which slowed down his uh momentum. Um And and still able to come that close to beating Federer, prime Federer at Wimbledon. Like, that was the moment for me when it became apparent that, you know, Nadal was going to soar uh, in in the larger story of men's tennis. He was going to be special on a scale that I don't think a lot of people still appreciated at the time. Because we we hadn't yet seen Rafa make the breakthrough on hard courts that that, you know, it would take him until 2009 to do that in Melbourne, it would take him until 2010 to do it uh, at the U.S. Open. What? How was your evolving sense of? I mean, we'll get to Djokovic soon enough, but in terms of how Nadal was creating a special era of men's tennis and was really joining Federer uh, in creating something that was beyond an individual athlete. What was your evolving sense at the time?
1: Well, so. I mean, I fast forward a little bit from there to Indian Wells 2009. Um, so I covered that tournament uh, for Pete's blog, for tennis.com uh, for, I'm going to say five years, I think 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And in 2009, um, There were a couple of uh, journalists there who were covering Nadal, who I spent some time with, one of whom wrote a cover story on him for the uh, New York Times Sunday magazine, uh, Elizabeth Gourlay. So I spent quite a lot of time with her. And Nadal by that time had become the number one player in the world, uh, taking over from Federer. Uh, after beating him not just at Roland Garros, but at Wimbledon in the 2008 final, which um, for some reason people find quite memorable anyway. Uh, the, uh, the, the That for me was Pete Nadal that year, was Pete Nadal up until his shock exit from Roland Garros that year. But at the Indian Wells tournament, uh, I was in the stands for the the match that he played against David Nalbandian, where Nalbandian had five match points, and Nadal just refused to lose. He had five match points uh, in the the second set. Uh, it was it was played well after midnight. Uh, just electric crowd. I think it was a round of sixteen match, but Nadal just refused to lose and. Completely crushed Nalbandian's spirit. Nalbandian lost the the third set, six love, and it it was it was confirmation for me that Nadal was um, his trajectory at the time was still going upwards. And it's because he's been around so long now; it's easy to to forget that. At Indian Wells in 2009, Nadal was still only 22. And so you you looked ahead and thought, oh, my goodness, if if he's this good when he's 22, what's he going to be like when he's 25 or 28? Now, Andre Agassi quite famously had said in 2005 that he feared that Nadal was... Uh, writing checks that his body couldn't cash, and I remember speaking to Vic Braden, who was um, you know famous American TV personality, uh, was by then in his in his eighties, who was doing some work on the stresses that uh, the biometrics uh, or biomechanical stresses that players were putting on their bodies, and he said that Nadal was um, you know putting something like six g's of stress on his ankles and knees by the way that he played and he feared that nadal was um storing up long-term trouble so i think there was a sense in the late 2000s that nadal was going to burn brightly so let me bring another movie reference in the the first blade runner where um the guy tyrell who's created all of the uh, the replicants talks to uh Roy Batty, famously played by Rutger Hauer, and says that you know he's going to have a short life, but how brightly he burns, but I think that some people kind of saw Nadal as someone who was going to shine brightly for a very brief s- span of time but then burn out and now it 's twenty twenty two and we 're looking back from a thirteen year vantage point back to two thousand and nine and seeing. Nadal is having a really long-lived, productive career, and having been uh, a force for so many periods of time. But in 2009, certainly, you knew that he was special.
0: Let's uh, let's pick up on that point about Nadal's longevity, because you know Nadal having that longevity that is an essential component in the the Big Four, Big Three era. Being what it was, you know, because if if Nadal had, in fact, burned out and, you know, we see in like pro- professional American football, like a running back has like often has four or five good years. And then the punishment of of the sport of football, like that's it. You don't get these long playing windows for a lot of players because the sport is so ph- physically punishing. And yes, the, the strain of especially hard courts, you know, because so much tennis is played on hard courts these days. As opposed to past decades, past eras, when it was mostly on grass and also on clay, you know, the U S open used to be on, uh, on uh, hard true green clay. Um, you know, so um, Nadal in, in past eras probably would have been naturally set up uh, for a, a high longevity career that he put together such a uh, high longevity career in the, this modern era, despite all the hardcore tennis. Like that's what enabled his rivalry with Federer to extend and have so many chapters. I mean, we saw the two play at Roland Garros and Wimbledon, uh, you know, deep into their, into their thirties, you know, well, well into their careers. And, you know, that's possible in part because the doll was able to last that long and overcome all the different injuries. So my question, Andrew is, was there like a moment when you realized, aha, you know, the, the longevity thesis is being shattered now. now, We all know that, of course, in terms of, you know, just taking this in as a whole era and a whole journey, well, Rafa ran the race and he's still running it. Uh, You know, Federer obviously calling it a day, but Nadal's still going. But was there like a specific point in time, Andrew, uh, when you realized, you know, the longevity thesis uh, is not going to hold up? You know, is it like 2013 when he came back from that long layoff and, and won the, Canada, Cincinnati, U.S. Open triple, or was it after the 2015 comeback? Uh, in any particular moment or or sequence, stand out in terms of you know what the longevity thesis does not hold up with Rafael Nadal.
1: Um. Well, I'm going to uh, to point to a comment made by Andy Roddick, which surfaces in a 20-minute documentary that was made around the the famous 2017 Australian Open final between Federer and Nadal, which is uh, one of the few Federer and Nadal Grand Slam finals that Federer fans remember with uh, pleasure for the, the fifth set comeback that Federer made there. But Roddick's comment was, that he saw this as being the most consequential match in tennis history because the title score was 17 to Federer, 14 to Nadal. If Nadal won, it was going to be 17-15. But if Federer won, it was going to be 18-14. And Roddick said, and it's really hard to see that being overcome. And you know, as as part of the sort of again the sort of the stat scouting I did for um, preparing for this conversation, I was looking at the number of times that uh, players got to the semi-finals of Grand Slams between 2012 and 2016, because I did some analysis. Going up to 2011, which I called the Big Four and the Super One when I was writing a a piece for for Pete's uh, Tennis World. The Big Four being the ATP Big Four, the Super One being Serena Williams. And the thesis was that you could count on the Big Four making it to the quarterfinals or the semifinals on the women's side at the time. Really, Serena Williams was the only one who was doing it. So I thought I'd take a look at the 2012-2016 period. So Djokovic makes the ATP semifinals 18 times out of 20. Uh, Federer uh, makes it 12 times. Murray makes it 16 times. So just behind Djokovic, and Nadal this may surprise you uh, made the semifinals just six times over that period. And so I think it was, there was a certain sense that yes, Raf has made it back after injury to the 2017 final, but he's something of a fading force. As we now know, you know, he not only added to 14, he's added eight in the year's, 2017 through 2022. How much more does he have in the tank? Who knows? But we all know that uh, people have said that the tank is empty before, and it hasn't been.
0: Um, I I just have to stop and say and, and impress upon our listeners here at Tennis with an accent how astonishing that is that Nadal that you know late period Nadal. Has won eight majors, and I mean, you know, Nadal acquired excellence. He attained mastery earlier in his career than Federer and Djokovic did. So that the fact that he has won so many majors in the last five years—that we we really need to stop and absorb just how remarkable a feat uh, that truly is. And of course, going through Djokovic uh, at Roland Garros. This year, as he did in 2020 as well, uh, truly a remarkable feat of of quality and longevity from Rafael Nadal. All right, so Nadal's longevity is part of this. Let's now go to Novak Djokovic and his place in the story of Roger Federer. I mean, you know, again, you want to listen to Sokip and Merck talk about Federer uh, specifically. They really zoned in on certain aspects of his life and career so you know andrew and i are talking about the big three big four era we'll touch on andy murray a little more as we go along uh, as well so we're now at the djokovic stage of the conversation and so you know as this rivalry evolved over the years i mean i I think obviously andrew the, the 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 centerpiece of the federer djokovic rivalry more than one match because it was such a good rivalry and in my mind it was the most entertaining rivalry among the big 4. Uh maybe not the best like you know Nadal Djokovic uh have played the most times and Federer Nadal was the the trailblazing rivalry that first gave us a sense of what was possible in this new era. So all these rivalries definitely have a special place. For me Federer Djokovic was the most entertaining but in and rather than pinpoint one match or one moment, I think the larger overall story of this rivalry is that Djokovic saved match points against Federer 3 times in the semis or finals of majors and was able to win all 3 of those times and we just look at those 3 moments Andrew if 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 even one of those matches ends differently the historical record book changes a lot if 2 of those matches end differently wow it's a tectonic shift that that is like the larger overall story to me of the Federer Djokovic rivalry what what are your foremost uh observations about this particular rivalry within Federer's career and within the 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 story of the big three big four era of men's tennis
1: okay and I think I'm going to politely and respectfully disagree with the premise that the 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 shape of the rivalry or how we'll remember the rivalry differs riding on those three matches certainly the last one uh not going to argue about that um had Federer beaten Djokovic in either of those matches the uh the two U.S. Open semifinals in 2010 and 2011 uh he would have played Nadal in the final and that was a period of time I think where um the odds likely favoured Nadal because of the the way the matchup went at at the time. So that's how that's why I'm disagreeing politely and respectfully with the uh, the match point conversation. the um, the overall shape of the the Federer Djokovic rivalry, and and I'm in agreement with you that that f- for entertainment value, there were. I think more high quality matches, contrast of styles, uh, and and more of the unexpected. I think out of Federer Djokovic than the uh, the other two big three rivalries, and and also with Murray. So that I'm I'm in agreement with you. Um, there is, I think you can really divide the the rivalry between Federer and Djokovic. Into sort of three phases. In the early phase, uh, Federer, um, as the older, more experienced player, uh, was winning many more matches than he was losing. Um, You have a middle period in which it sort of goes back and forth. So you have those two matches, the US Open semifinals uh, in back to back years. In the 2011 season, Federer was the one to snap Djokovic's streak at Roland Garros, where Djokovic, I think, was on something like a 43-match winning streak. And that match between the two of them uh, is, is, is a stone classic. It, it's four sets. It ends with a, a Federer ace in the fourth set tiebreak, uh, But Djokovic, led by a break, and I believe served for the fourth set before Federer broke back. Uh, the only time you ever saw Paul Anakin jump out of his chair and fist bump was when Federer uh, took the first set tie break against Djokovic. And although Federer would then go on to lose to Nadal in the final of Roland Garros, that that match is, is I think, a stone classic. Federer also... Beat Novak in the Wimbledon uh, semi-final in 2012 before beating Murray in the final in 2012. Uh, so there's the, the sort of a sort of a to and fro in the in the middle period, but then in the the later period, again unhappily for Federer fans, but but happily for Djokovic fans, Novak owns Roger in the biggest matches, particularly in the Grand Slams. So you have the 2014 Wimbledon final, uh, which might be remembered as a a classic. It was a five-setter that Federer saved match points in before losing 6-4 in the final set. Um, The 2015 Wimbledon final won by Novak in, in four sets in a fairly comprehensive manner. You have the 2015 US Open Final, uh, which uh, I think is notorious for the uh the crowd behavior, uh, but is a tremendous match. And then you have the uh 2016 Australian Open semi-final, which uh Novak won reasonably comfortably in in, in four sets. And then the other obvious classic match is the 2019 Wimbledon final that I still have nightmares over. Um, And that's one that uh, if uh, Federer is able to convert one of the two match points he has after breaking back against Novak, who had a a break lead in the fifth set, um, as Nadal had had, and Federer managed to get the break back, then to go up. 8-7 uh, to serve at 40-15 uh, but not to be able to convert those two match points and then to play the only tie break that they'll ever play at Wimbledon at 12-all at uh, which Novak locked down and gave away no unforced errors in any of the, the tie breaks so was the deserved winner of, of that match just for the tie breaks alone but uh no the, the 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 final stage of the the Djokovic uh Federer rivalry is really Novak in not just the grand slams but um the year-end championship finals that he he played against Federer he he won those during that period it's really uh it's one way traffic at that stage and what's quite interesting is that as I think Mert discussed with Sakib in the, the previous podcast, and I really encourage you to listen to it, Federer was able in the latter stages of his career to actually turn around some of the head-to-head against Rafael Nadal, um, you know, really working on his backhand, um, you know, changing some of the dynamics of play, uh, particularly with the the forehand to the, the ad corner that nadal had been able to uh to work so successfully so federer had a sort of 6-1 record against nadal in the later stages of their rivalry but the the latter stages of the federer Djokovic rivalry um it's it's dominated by by novak all right and you
0: know as we as we go through these years and these periods and these memories i mean it just it just sinks in how many different moments of earthquake-level importance are part of Roger Federer's story in tennis. So, I mean, really, if we were to unpack all of these different moments, Andrew, and for everyone who's listening, like, this would take 20 hours. So we only have one hour, pretty much, on this podcast. I just want everyone listening to appreciate the enormity of this journey and how completely inadequate one hour is uh, to really get into all of these different stories. So, like, I'm, I'm sure that plenty of you are saying, okay, are you going to go into a Federer-Djokovic classic match in detail? Well, we'd like to, certainly, but we really don't have time for that. I just want to make that clear. So let's now deal with Andy Murray. Again, he he was part of the Labor Cup, uh, part of that final journey, and he definitely deserves his place at the table. So when we look at Federer versus Murray, I think the obvious – first point of recollection the first point of focus would be the summer of 2012 because they met in a Wimbledon final and an Olympic gold medal match and they did so on the same court so that is certainly a very powerful unique uh connection binding the two of them together in history um so that 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 to me is like the foremost Headline element of the Federer Murray rivalry. There's also the fact that uh, um, you know they 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 obviously they met in the 2008 U.S. Open final. That was Murray's first major final, uh, and they also had a memorable 2013 Australian Open semifinal where you know a lot a lot of the commentators were saying uh, Murray straight sets Federer in five, like it was the most uh, one way traffic five set match ever, and that Federer was you know did remarkably well against the run of play to somehow extend it in five before Murray had the final answer. So Andrew, you know your foremost thoughts and recollections and analysis about the Murray-Federer rivalry.
1: Yeah, so um, my most visceral memory of the Murray-Federer rivalry was that 2009 semi-final at Indian Wells where Federer lost in three sets to Murray and I had a press credential and so I'd been watching the match come back into the press room and over the, the intercom it said Roger Federer is in press now and Federer came off the court in his kit, carrying his bags and just walked straight into the press room. And he, he, he was not best pleased. He was very unhappy to have lost. And it was full of black humor. I mean, one of the, one of the answers he gave was, well, you know why do he's, well, I'm old, he's young. very, very cross about losing that match. And then Murray came into the press room a bit later. Uh, I think he'd had a shower. And, and he was asked about the match. And he said, well, there's lots of ways to, to win a tennis match, but I think I won it. I don't think he lost it. I think I won it. And I'm not going to give Federer the kind of shots that he wants to make that I, the, the, my job is to is to find ways to make it as hard as possible for him to to play the kind of game that he wants to play and and Murray was extremely cerebral for a young player, and probably still is as a, as a somewhat older player and at, at the time I used to describe him as the anti agassi because when andre Agassiz played tennis you pretty much knew what you were going to get tactically he might throw in a drop shot or two here and there but it was a little bit like I mean I know how much you like your football Matt and it was like the Green Bay power sweep you know four yards and a cloud of dust you know it's coming can you stop it and with Agassi it was okay they know what I'm going to do but can they stop it with Andy Murray it was all about completely disrupting another player's flow and making it such that um, he he wasn't quite sure which shots were working, which shots um, could work. Uh, In 2008, um, I think the last time the Madrid tournament was played on hard courts, Murray beat Federer and and almost moonballed him to death, Um, completely disrupted his rhythm. And I think at one stage Murray had something like a six to two uh, head-to-head advantage over Federer because he 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 didn't allow Federer to play the way that he wanted to play, and this was something that I think eventually Federer began to work out how he wanted to play against Murray, improved his his record against him, and and ended up with uh, a winning head-to-head record against Murray. the 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 2012 season. So you mentioned the two Wimbledon matches that they played. Um, I didn't actually get to see the final because I was on a business trip to Australia. I was actually in a plane for 16 hours. And when I got off the plane in Brisbane, I ran to the the, the first Internet terminal I could find, uh, you know, went and, and checked the BBC and, and, and swore. Uh, the Australians must have thought I was one of them the amount of swearing I was doing but you'll recall in that match that it was was played over five sets, Murray won in straight sets and I think one of the reasons that that Murray prevailed that day and you know that I'm also going to say no asterisks but the semi-final between Federer and Del Potro is maybe one of the great Ten matches of of Federer's illustrious career, and it finished nineteen seventeen in the third set. That's a score that you'll never ever see again, and I don't think we we'd, we'd seen to that time. The the you know you've got the big three era and the big four era, and we've concentrated on 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 those rivals. But Del Potro is another player who. Um, you know, could give Federer fits. Would beat him at Basel. Famously beat him in a in a U.S. Open final. And that semi final uh, at Wimbledon is, you know, if you if you've got a DVD of it, then just pop it in sometime and and luxuriate in it. It was quite a match
0: and and you know one just just about that Del Potro Olympic semifinal is that Federer was serving for the match at either 10-9 or 11-10 one of the two and if if he had been able to serve out the match at that much earlier juncture of the third set maybe he has a much fresher fuel tank so yeah definitely no asterisks because it was within Federer's power to shorten that that match and he couldn't do it so when you fail to shorten a match and it's in your power to do so. Well, then you need to pay the piper. Um, so as we as we expand out, let, we, so we've talked about each of the big four and Federer's uh, rivalries <coughs> against uh, each of them. I think uh, let, let's broaden our focus in terms of just Federer's journey and some of the unique points along the way in terms of you know how the tennis world, how fans looked at Roger Federer along the way. And I think Andrew, for me. As as someone who you know closely followed Federer, much as you have, I mean, now you had a front row seat, you know, being uh, you know covering tournaments for Tennis World and and other outlets. Uh, you covered a few te- tournaments for Tennis with an accent. Um, the thir- the first thought that emerges for me is 2013 and that very difficult summer and the back problems, the injuries, uh, the 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 dark cloud moment against Tommy Robredo at the u.s open and the chorus from a lot of people it wasn't a majority of federer fans but it was from a good vocal subsection retire so that you preserve your legacy you know federer needs to retire get out of it now you know don't uh spend your remaining years however much you have as a spent force while nadal and djokovic just bash your skull in and obviously as we know two years later he produces a brilliant 2015 season which you know if Djokovic had not delivered arguably the best season of men's tennis in the open era you know Federer would have walked off with a lot of riches that year because you had Nadal down uh Murray was still figuring some things out it prime Djokovic is what prevented 2015 Federer from having even more majors in his trophy case and then of course you have the 2017, 2018 joyride, where he wins three majors in two years. He wins uh, a, a couple of he he you know he wins Wimbledon for the eighth time uh and and is able to get to twenty. So what what well, let's recreate that that environment in two thousand thirteen in the summer. And you know Federer was Vedder turned thirty two uh that summer and, you know, we weren't able to know what it was going to be like as Federer got into his mid and late 30s. We hadn't seen Federer. And of course, you know, Nadal, Nadal would happen later on. And now Djokovic is going through the same thing, getting into the mid 30s. Um, We didn't know what to expect in terms of each of these players, late period careers. So, you know, was it was it a reasonable instinct to, to, to fear that, you know, like the end for federal was nigh or was that really, was that already, like, could you sense at the time in the present moment that, you know what, that was not to be taken seriously. How, how were you processing how federal was going to handle the next step, whatever that was in the summer of 2013?
1: Well, the, best way to answer that is you know you can do a google search uh another of our former um buddies at tennis world who used to uh post a c-note is courtney nguyen who's now um covering the wta tour uh and a you know, very seasoned journalist in in early 2014 she'd been asked by John Wertheim to uh, work at Sports Illustrated. And she reached out to me in early 2014 for something called a fans view. Uh, and we had an email conversation, which was published at Sports Illustrated. So if you do a Google search on Courtney Nguyen, Andrew Burton, Federer, fans view, you'll see the, uh, the conversation that we had. and. Um, yeah, you know, quite frankly, I thought that Federer's best years were behind him. I thought that each of the other members of the big four uh, came in likely as a favorite to play Federer, uh, with Nadal then a prohibitive favorite. And I thought that Federer, you know, he, he wasn't going to, to, to vanish, but that, uh, you know, even a... a, a a bigger tennis racket and a uh, coaching engagement with Stefan Edberg wasn't going to, um, you know, have magical healing powers for Federer after the 2013 season. I was very strongly influenced by an article uh, about Derek Jeter, which had run in the the New York Times about athletic decline and particularly about the the role of vision and you know how you don't quite pick up a ball as early as you move into your 30s and so you know what followed the years that followed were, were a huge surprise I will point out that you know we've talked a little bit about majors the 2014 season saw Federer fulfill uh, a career ambition which was to lift the Davis Cup with his Swiss colleagues, with Severin Lutti, who was the Davis Cup captain, and with Stan Vavrinka, who memorably uh, played against Federer in the uh, London World Tour finals that year. Uh, Federer saved match points. Uh, Mirka Federer is alleged to have called Stan a crybaby during the match, and the two men had a a very heated argument afterwards, uh, with Lutie in the locker room, but Federer had injured his back in the match and, uh, had to concede a walkover to Djokovic who would be his final opponent, then had to try and recuperate and prepare for the Davis cup final against France at Lille that year. And you, you may remember that, that match, Matt, that, uh, Vavrinka beat Songa in the first tie. And then Gael Monfils spanked uh, Federer in three sets to make the, the tie one all. And then Vavrinka and Federer teamed up in the doubles against Gasquet and Beneteau. And that's on my list, my top 10 list of uh, memorable Federer matches, the, the doubles that he and Stan played because they they basically took the Beneteau-Gasquet team apart, won in straight sets, and then Federer beat Gasquet in straight sets to lift the Davis Cup, although we now know that uh, Federer was still having a lot of back issues and wasn't sure he could finish the match against Gasquet. He was actually telling Luti that Stan might need to warm up during the first set of, of that match. So... I, I I think in tennis terms, and I'm hoping that we've got enough time to to look at the broader impact of Roger Federer on the tennis and the sports world rather than just talk about matches, titles, trophies, et cetera. But that 2014 Davis Cup, I mean, the the Davis Cup has moved on, and I call it the PK Cup now because I I, I don't really see it as as having anything like the cachet. That it had in uh, the 2000s, uh, you know, the 1970s, the 1980s, up to the 2000 and the 2010s. But winning the Davis Cup with Stan Wawrinka for Switzerland, I think will, will always go down as a career highlight for Federer.
0: No question about it. and It's another really great moment uh, to, to bring up in, uh, about Federer's career. Again, we're not going to be able to bring up all of them. How do you account for all of them? But certainly picking up some definite highlights. All right, Andrew, you said you wanted to talk about Roger Federer's larger impact on on sports, you know, beyond uh, specific matches and specific tennis moments. You have the floor. What what is his impact on, on this larger scale in this larger theater of global sport?
1: So you know, so I I kicked off the the conversation that we're having with the Labor Cup and the way that the Labor Cup this year played out. So the the Labor Cup itself and that um, the scenes that we saw, the reflections of other players, Nadal's tears. There's there's some wonderful interviews with Nadal afterwards where he reflects on what it meant to him the fact that he wasn't sure that he was going to attend. His wife uh, is expecting their first child. It's been a difficult pregnancy. And Federer reached out to him to tell him that he was making it his last tournament and that he'd like his last match to be doubles. And so Nadal you know, moved heaven and earth to be there. So the, the way that first Federer then Nadal as number one, and then Djokovic as as number one, have attempted to, to be leaders of the sport, of the men's game. I think that's a legacy of Federer's. I think that the rivalries can mean friendships as well as uh, a, you know, a... Two men enter, one man leaves, death contest. That's a big part of his legacy. But the Labour Cup also gets us into business and, and, and the business of sports. There's some controversy here, and um, it'll it'll touch into another area, which I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But there are controversies about conflicts of interest, about... Uh, tournaments and players being part of the ATP structure, and the Labor Cup is a is a brand new competition. It was created by teammate the the company that Federer set up with with Tony Godsick. Uh, they went and got sponsorship from uh, Tennis Australia and the USTA. They, they the 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 sponsors that they. Um, Described uh, that they thanked after this year's Labor Cup were Rolex and uh, Credit Suisse, uh, who and Mercedes Benz, all of whom have 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 sponsored Federer. And Federer's impact on on tennis branding, I think, has been immense. His impact on style has been immense. When he he first started playing. You know, it was basically a scruffy kid who didn't shave a lot uh, and wore a ponytail. And then in the, in the mid-2000s, really starting with the 2004 year-end championships in Houston, um, you look at the famous match that he played against Leighton Hewitt uh, in the 2004 US Open final. Both of them are, are wearing Nike off-the-shelf kits you go to um the 2004 year-end championships Federer is wearing different kits for each matches sort of a, a quite nicely designed blocky kit but he's also uh gotten rid of the ponytail and then in the 2005 um series he starts this thing of his own designed kit by Nike. Nike kits him out in different kits for the different seasons, and that lasts for a period of about four or five years, during which Federer also introduces day and night kit. Uh, He first starts this out at at the US Open, where he wore blue uh, in the day, blue and white in the day, but he'd wear black at night, and there was this sort of Darth Federer uh, idea I think, in uh, the 2007 tournament where he wore black to, to play Djokovic in the final. Uh, the branding, the, the RF caps, um, and then takes it into uh, style off-court as well. Um, one time, I think four or five years ago, he's, he's a, he's a, a GQ-style icon. And he he and Godsick put together this portfolio of aspirational brands. You've got Mercedes Benz Credit Suisse. You've got uh, Lint chocolates. You've got um, Jura coffee. Um, it was it, it, it was a way of marrying together the style of the player and the affect of the player with a brand business portfolio. Uh, godsick and federer have set up a uh a management company Team Eight, which uh are, act as agents for some of the players so the the business side of it uh federer is far and away the the highest compensated tennis player uh and most of that comes from off-court sponsorships then you get into the 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 business of tennis itself and Federer uh, was for six years the president of the Players Council for the ATP and came back in with Nadal in uh, 2019 or no 2020 I believe when there was a big kerfuffle uh, about the way that the ATP was run He, he and Nadal came back in and I think that the, the ATP uh, structure is under challenge from Djokovic and Pospisil and uh, the Professional Tennis Players Association. That is still to play out, but Federer has very much come down on the what you could call the traditionalist side, that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Djokovic is on the it's broke and it needs fixing side, so all of those things together are are, are different ways that, that Federer has been involved in the branding of tennis, the management of tennis, and I think will continue to influence it in the years after he re- is retired.
0: Well, you know, we could say, you know, what we want to see from Federer, uh, you know, in his uh, the next stage of his of his life, whatever that is, but. Let's look at this more analytically. Like, what do you think Federer could do? What do you think Federer is in position to do well? Uh with specifically within tennis, maybe in, in larger areas of global sports and, and, and marketing, something else. Um, you know, what do you think he is uniquely suited to do based on all that you know about teammate and and uh Tony Godsick and and just the the things that Federer has been involving himself with do you think there's a, a a new and unexpected chapter that that we might see from him like uh i know one thing is that you know he says like he said that you know while he was still playing like he couldn't ski he couldn't do other recreational things like uh you know so would we see him be part of like the international olympic committee or would he go into, you know, uh, deepen and broaden his his efforts in global philanthropy? You know, he does have that foundation, which is doing great work in Africa. And, you know, it is a foundation which, by all accounts, is delivering what it says it's going to do. A lot of athlete foundations are basically just money grabs skimming off the top. But, you no, know, Fetter's Federer and also uh, Djokovic have done great work through their foundations. So what do you think Federer is in a position to do? uh as he begins a new part of his life
1: so i personally expect it to be to continue to be at the intersection of tennis and and seeing that tennis continues to be a a worthwhile sport for all of its stakeholders I think that the, the, the thing that Federer probably has more than any other person is a Rolodex. Well, you know, that's me showing my age. It, 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 it's really an iPhone with an iPhone contacts list. And I hope he's backing them up. But, but he can talk to players. He can talk to tournament organizers. He can talk to uh, the ATP uh, and the ITF. He can talk to sponsors. I don't think that there is a C-level suite where if Roger Federer puts in a call to uh, a chief executive that he won't be given an hour to come in and say, okay, here's, here's what I'm looking to do. So I think that he, he has he has built an enormous amount of relationship capital. One of the things that the highlights for me from the conversation that Sakib and and Mert had during the the first round of the podcast, this is the second round looking at at Federer's career, but Mert talked about one of his friends who was a tennis coach who got to talking to Federer about uh, soccer after a practice session with uh, the coach's player, and that Federer, for about a year afterwards, was looking him up and uh, and checking in with him about the the progress of their their two soccer teams and what was going on. And he, the Murd also spoke about a journalist who didn't get to ask Federer a, a question during a press conference, and then Federer later on sought him out in the hotel and said come down and meet me in the lobby and and spent 10 minutes talking directly to him. The, you know, the way that Mert described Federer and, and my experience with Federer has been that he, he, he does talk to people as a human being and he's going to be able, I think, to bring people together if he chooses to in positive ways i think he's got the connections i think he's got the uh the human relationship capital to be able to make that happen i think it's going to be a different it's going to be a difficult uh decade for for tennis um somebody who i respect enormously who's not writing about tennis at the moment for personal reasons is, is Matthew Willis, who is Matt Rackett on, on Twitter, who is, who is, a I think, a superb analytical mind about tennis. And, and Matt has uh, written extensively about the challenges facing tennis as it moves into the decade, the, the things that it's leaving on the table, the ways that it hasn't adapted to uh, business opportunities in the way that maybe other sports like golf have done. And Federer, I think, is in a position uh, to spot opportunities, to bring people together. And, and I hope he continues to do that.
0: Now, we've all you know, taken in the retrospectives and, and the memories, and, and we've all gone through our own mental Rolodexes of matches, moments, periods, eras, rivals. You know, from from all the commentary that you've read, whether it's been articles or TV coverage, just any interesting moments that you've seen or things that you've read that like, aha, like I remember this or, hey, that's an overlooked detail that I, you know, it's good to kind of pull that back. I mean, obviously for people listening, this podcast is itself an attempt to kind of recall some memories, pull them back into the forefront so that we kind of get a sense of, what the past 20 years have been like with Roger Federer playing tennis, something we've been so privileged to to be able to do Uh, anything from like the coverage of the farewell and anything from uh, just your period of reminiscing, you know, over this past, these past few weeks before and after the labor cup uh, that is worth um, mentioning and bringing up before we close the show.
1: Well, I think there've, there've been some some pretty good retrospectives and, and summaries by journalists. Steve Tigner, um, you know, our old buddy who used to um I I used to see him and and have beers and hamburgers with him at the beer hunters. Steve did a really good piece. Uh, Christopher Clary, who's written a superb um biography of Federer, but not just Federer, his, his rivals. Uh, Christopher did uh, some great work. Um, There's, there's translations of the Nadal interviews that, that, that folks should go and look up. Um, I, I had the single most viral tweet I've ever put out in something like 13 years on the site, uh, came at the end of the Labour Cup. And it wasn't anything I said. It was something that, that Andy Roddick said. Um, so it had, uh, as of today, I think it's had about um, 47,500 likes and 3,500 retweets. And it isn't original to me. It's something that Andy Roddick said. And he said it about uh, 20 minutes after the end of the Labour Cup and the ceremony and the interviews that happened there. Uh, And Roddick said, I absolutely love and respect Roger Federer. I don't say that about many people who ruined my life for a decade. And. You know, if you think about Federer's rivals, we've talked about the big four, Roddick, and he played uh, many fantastic matches. Um, I believe after one of them, Roddick said that I have to start winning a few for it to become a rivalry. And everyone is going to remember the 16-14 Wimbledon final in 2009, where... I think for many people, Roddick was the better player on the day. He broke Federer twice in the first set and fourth set. Uh, Federer won tie breaks in the second and third set, but didn't break Roddick until the very last game where Roddick was sort of out on his feet. Um, And that was a a tremendously painful loss uh, for Roddick But then um, Roddick actually did beat Federer a couple of times uh, after that at Miami and was asked about uh, that in the the post-match press conference and said that Federer had come up to him in the locker room after the match and had said, you know, well done, you really deserved it. And that, you know, he hadn't needed to do that. And Roddick, again, commenting on Federer in the, the post-Laver Cup, so we're now in 2022, said, it's the small things, it's what you see when nobody else was looking, that Roger was doing, that he was talking to the attendants, he was talking to uh the ball kids, he was talking to... Um. You know, he was talking to sponsors. There were all kinds of things that he was doing. His legacy would be defined by the things he was doing when nobody was watching. So, of course, much of our conversation, Matt, has been focused on the matches, the rivals, the things that everybody watched. The things that Andy Roddick saw were the things that other people didn't see so we'll come full circle perhaps in this conversation to 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 what we introduced the conversation on which was i think one of his legacies is going to be his greatest rivals including a man who said he ruined my life for a decade how much love and respect they've had for him and hopefully will continue to have um in Years to come.
0: Andrew, uh, I could not have anyone better to talk about and make sense of and and appreciate the career of Roger Federer than you. Uh, And of course, we'll continue to cover and follow the story of tennis as it evolves. But Federer certainly was one of the special ones. And one of the things that tennis fans certainly appreciate about commentators, uh, the good ones, is that they get out of the way. Uh, in important moments they don't talk too much and so as we bring this show to a close I'm just going to get out of the way and 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 let your words speak for themselves and the final word about Roger Federer is something that you have said often and it's worth saying now it will be worth saying again we shall not see his light again Andrew Burton thank you for this Roger Federer retrospective on the Tennis with an Accent
1: podcast my, my pleasure thanks for having me Matt
0: Thank you.